0: Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars,
1: but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.
2: To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreoncom partners in crime media.
0: I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers on is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, her father went to prison for the murder of her mother. 30 years later, DNA may point to a different shooter. We'll talk about the podcast The Yellow Car. Then, three mismatched true crime fans make their own podcast after stumbling across a suspicious death in their wealthy Manhattan apartment complex. We'll talk about the Hulu comedy series, Only Murders in the Building. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, formerly love of my life, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Why formally? <laughs> we were having technical difficulties before this and it got testy.
1: You mean that you just decided to rip a computer out 10 minutes before we started to record?
0: It wasn't working. And
1: then said every button on here that's been where it has been for the past five years is in the wrong spot? Correct. Okay.
0: Also with (laughs) us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of the brand new cozy murder mystery, Dead on
3: Deadline, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. Yeah, um, people that I see around town on my regular walk now, they kind of give me a little bit of a hairy eyeball because I think they're afraid I'm going to kill them off in the next book. You should then. If they give you Long the hairy eyeball. it's just eyeball, the book. Yeah. I mean, that's the bar. If they don't meet that bar, they're dead, right? Dead, dead, it dead. It is. So I, I do sign a lot of books now. I promise I won't kill you off.
0: Hmm. I want to be killed off.
1: No. (laughs) And
0: finally, (laughs) returning to the panel, finally, our captain of woke cynicism, author of the City Trilogy novels, host of Strange Arrivals, and the Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcasts, Toby Ball. Welcome back, Toby. For (laughs) sure, Toby, you were almost replaced last week. I mean, you were replaced. It went really well, though. Did you listen at all? You don't listen to this podcast.
4: I listened to the beginning. I listened (laughs) to enough to hear the stick I was being given Hmm. and and how lovely Janet was being. And then I just got off. You could be replaced any minute, Toby Ball. You know, if I'm going to be replaced by Janet Farney, that's fine. I can live with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we all could live with that. (laughs) Um, You're
4: not supposed to say that. I'm supposed to say that. No, I meant meant if
0: I got replaced with Janet Varney, I could live with that. I didn't mean we could all live with you being replaced. I I meant that. I meant any single one of us could be replaced by Janet Varney, and this podcast would probably be 30% better, right? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> so
0: kevin i hear we have a little bit of business we wanted to do at the beginning of this podcast yeah
1: we'll talk more later but uh as you mentioned Lara's new book dead on deadline is available now and she's going to be doing well a uh, a book launch party here in new hampshire in exeter uh on the 15th but before that on the evening of september 14th seven o'clock Eastern Standard Time, Laura is going to be holding a virtual book launch party. It's going to be uh, simulcast on Crowdcast for our patrons on Patreon. They can interact with Laura, uh, ask some questions, and I think we're going to have a, a bit of a a game that Laura is going to play. If you aren't in Patreon, you still can watch the party because we're going to simulcast it on Facebook. Nice. So it'll be out there to the world, and Laura is going to read a little bit from the book. And it should be a lot of fun.
0: Am I supposed yeah. to go to both book launch parties,
3: the virtual one and the real life one?
1: Well, I'm going to, bu- I can't drink it. Well, I guess I can drink at the virtual one. <laughs> y-
3: yeah, you can drink at both of them. They, they have beer and wine and all sorts of good stuff at the uh, the other one, too. Right. All right. Well, with that business aside, should we go ahead and
0: start this podcast? Why not? Let's get it done. Leading off. I've never had a doubt that I'm going to get the person that killed my mom. I I knew it. From the beginning, and I told my mom I had kept her at the funeral hall. <laughs> In 1989, daycare provider Effie Antizari was shot point-blank in the parking lot of her Vancouver, Washington apartment complex. The murder happened the day before her divorce hearing was to commence, and investigators homed in on her estranged husband. But Mike Antizari had no connection to the possible getaway car leaving the scene. And when she looked out her window, she saw a yellow car speed out of the parking lot. This clue will later become
3: a big part of Pune's search for the killer.
0: Decades later, Pune Gray has continued her quest to clear her father's name, questioning the ballistics and struggling with authorities to test DNA left on her mother's sweater by the shooter.
3: We think we have strong evidence against the shooter and we hope for an arrest. And then we hope that the shooter then describes what happened and explains why he did it.
0: From KGW-TV and Vault Studios comes the eight-part podcast, The Yellow Car. Host Ashley Korslian recounts Effie's murder and follows Pune's pursuit of new forensic evidence to implicate the people she believes were behind her mother's death. Now we are going to be talking about plot points from The Yellow Car, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up and thumbs-down review. Now, Laura, you pointed out in your notes something that I noticed right away. We have a TV journalist here doing a podcast. To me, it sounds like a TV news spot, like pretty much the entire time. What did you think of just like the production style of this podcast, knowing that it is originally like a a TV station doing this?
3: Well, I actually didn't know. That kind of makes a little more sense now going into this. I I think the first thing for me is I had a hard time kind of connecting to the narration style starting off. I liked when we had this sort of more informal conversations. But then going into this kind of TV-ish, I don't know if that's even a word, you know, I wanted a host more than I wanted a narrator. And it was kind of jarring going back and forth. Like I felt like the actual narration was taking me out of the story and i enjoyed following along when there were interviews and phone calls and things where the host sounded a little bit more natural to me hmm. so it was it was just the style for me was hard to get used to from an audio standpoint. It might've looked different if it was um, something that I was watching. Uh, Toby, what do you think just sort of about, Laura mentioned like
0: emotional pitch to the podcast, narration versus in tape audio. What do you think about that? Because I had questions about that as well.
4: Yeah, I I agree with her. I think with the narration and the whole TV thing does make sense. It felt like you were about to cut away to an ad and they didn't want you to leave. Uh, So it was like, constantly like felt like there was some revelation about to come or whatever, when there really weren't that many more than a lot of other things. Like there's a real difference between the narration voice and the, the kind of just having a conversation voice. There wasn't as much of an ebb and a flow, I guess in the narrative, which I think the best podcasts have so that it just seemed like it was like just sort of this constant sort of barrage of, of things. And there wasn't necessarily a way of telling like what was going to be super important and what was going to be not that important. And sometimes there are things that I thought were going to be important that then ended up just kind of dissolving and and not being followed up on. So I guess, you know, I had a slightly different take on it, but I think sort of the same reaction, which is, it was a little jarring and then I don't think the kind of pitch of it changed enough other than just sort of whether it was sort of formal talking or, or less formal talking during interviews, to be as effective as it could have been.
0: Kevin, I have a question for you. So in the podcast, Ashley turns to experts to get us through some of the evidentiary problems with this case against Mm -hmm. Mike, you know, the ballistics expert, um, you know, she also does some DNA experts. And she makes a point to say, like, this person has nothing to do with this case uh, and all that stuff. But. The evidence itself, I mean, we're sort of told initially that it doesn't matter and it wasn't really part of the conviction because it didn't match anyway. Like did you find some of that that journalism that they did here where they were sort of explaining how ballistics work and why sometimes it's not good and why sometimes some of the experts say it's great, which I still don't quite buy. Do you think that was effective here, you know, because we heard a lot well, of that in like in The Dark for instance?
1: Yeah, I mean, we talk about the forensics, but it's kind of divorced from you know sort of what the rest of the podcast, what's happening here. But if we want to just jump to the bit about the ballistics examiner shot, and was it like twelve sample slugs yep. to keep trying to find a match to the um you know to the the lethal you know the slug that killed Effie? You know, there was a point made that like, well, if you have to keep looking at it that many times then maybe you're just, you know, you're just kind of looking for something. And Toby had a really great point I noticed in his notes how that says an awful lot about the rest of the investigation, you know, if you keep looking for something long enough, right Toby?
4: Yeah, I mean I I'd like to think it was a subversive metaphor, but I think maybe it wasn't intentional, but Yeah,
0: I don't think it was either.
4: <laughs> I mean, I think it does pertain to Pune's sort of quest. I mean, she's for 30 years, she's been trying to exonerate her father. And at this point, what she has is this, and you don't get much because she says she can't really talk about some of the stuff she knows, but this idea that some Iranians that she's always not liked are running an international passport scheme. And you can tell because two people show up and they've got similar names and different birthdays. And then a month later, people with similar names and different birthdays. And she's pretty sure if her mom had known, then she would have said something. And then these people probably killed her. And it's like, what are you talking about? Hmm. Like after 30 years, this is what you've come up with. So I kind of think it's the same thing. It's like for 30 years, she's looked at these people, examined things. She said she's followed them all this stuff and what she's kind of done is the equivalent of what she claims these ballistics people did is that she found something that she feels like she can grab a hold on to make a point Hmm.
0: Laura I have a side question for you do you think that what Pune is trying to do here is exonerate her father or find her mother's killer because those are not necessarily the same things you know what I mean
3: oh that's interesting um you know now that you say that It's hard to tell, quite honestly, because she does talk a lot about, like, she promised her mother, you know, she sat in the funeral home with her mother's body and promised her she would, you know, solve this. But there is so much devoted to her father as well. Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like it's it's, it's almost like for her, maybe more, like, the fact that she spent a million dollars over 30 years... I guess for me, I, I came away feeling like from a mental health kind of standpoint, at what point is it time to just sort of step away? Because that's really taking it to, I, and I understand that she feels like this was a wrongful conviction and, and everything. You feel sympathy for her, but you also feel like, I guess I hate to say from this podcast, I didn't come away feeling like very concrete evidence that there was a wrongful conviction, you know, so, you know, it goes into like, I think about cases where people hire expert witnesses. And like, you can certainly find an expert witness that will, you know, probably say some things that you want to hear eventually after that long. So I don't know. I don't think it was clear to me what what the real motive was. I guess that's what you're getting. I I don't think it was really clear, which is why I can't answer that. That's okay. Now, Kevin, I have two questions for you sort of about the journalism here. Mm -hmm. One is about structure.
0: So the podcast starts, like, with the most suspenseful part of the podcast, which is we finally got DNA. I and mean, this is the first literally 10 minutes of the podcast. Mm-hmm. We finally got DNA on the guy we think did it. We sent the DNA to a lab. Uh, the lab says that he couldn't be excluded, which could mean a bunch of things, but generally means it's very likely match. Um, I only know that because of Bear Brook stuff. But not be excluded is actually a very common language for, we don't want to say it's 100% sure. So we're just going to say not, not be excluded. So they start there. And then the story kind of like goes all the way back. And I'm curious what you think about that structure, because you often make the argument that a podcast should start at the most interesting moment or at the murder or at the revelation. Do you think that this worked here?
1: You know, I I really don't know what to make of this podcast sort of as a whole. Um, Ashley has been gathering this story for years, it seems, right? And to finish it now and release it now when the story isn't really done, there isn't any sort of natural resolution or a place where sort of narratively you can end. It seems weird. It's like you've been doing this for 2 years, why not wait 6 more months? Hmm. Because it's either, you know, to to drop it now is you're either trying to let it completely play out or if you release it now, you're just, you know, trying to put pressure on the authorities to do something. If you if you wait until or the on authorities tipsters, right, right, or we wait till the authorities do something, either take action or officially, you know, close it and take no action, then you have a natural ending. I think it's because they think with this podcast and the attention that it'll cause the authorities to take some action. But I don't think that benefits the podcast as mm. much as it benefits that investigation.
0: So second journalism question, I want all of your takes on this over and over and over again. A huge theme in this podcast is we know a thing. We can't tell you what it is, but mm. just trust us. It's juicy and it's, and it's like totally incriminating. Doesn't that mean that you're not ready to publish Now, I understand not saying names of people, but I also know because I listened to the podcast that when you say something like we have proof of X, but we can't tell you what that proof is. Just sort of trust us like that's problematic, right?
1: I think that, you know, that's fine in small doses, but so much of the counter narrative is that we can't tell you the names of the people. We can't tell you the business that they were in with Effie. We can't tell you what our well, proof is of why the they're at this is, place yeah, yeah you know it just was it left so much especially if you you know you're going to have the counter narrative of you, it's either mike did it and the whole time he's done it or it's he's innocent and somebody else did it and if so why would they have done it you got to build that case not just with forensics but as listeners why would we want to believe that you know what what is really there and it's hard to make a convincing case when you can't tell anybody really interesting stuff, and especially when the stuff we hear about Mike isn't exactly, you know... Um, exculpatory? Exculpatory, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know? I mean, we could talk about that more, but I think that it's probably okay in a couple of instances, but that just seems to be all we know about the John, Frank, Jane Doe group, is that they were up to something.
0: Since investigators haven't charged or arrested any of the people Pune suspects in Effie's murder, I can't use their names, which means I have to use pseudonyms for the group. One of them is the suspected shooter, John Doe. That's whose DNA was likely found on Effie's body at the crime scene. So I'll just say you laid out the two possibilities the podcast lays out. Either he did it or some other group of people did. Yeah,
1: or they did it together. Is they I never think
0: it's the, talk about the fact that like, maybe he could have hired someone else to do it. Like, they never talk about that. doesn't yeah. even come up. There as wasn't a, a lot of pushback. His
4: tenants. <laughs> yeah, it it,
0: yeah, his own tenants doesn't come up as a possibility. Laura, what do you think, as a journalist, about all of the things they tell us exist, fact that they tell us exist, they have in evidence, but we can't tell you? Because to me, it means the story is not ready to go. But what do you think about that?
3: I mean, I think it's like Kevin said, I think it's OK for like a thing here or there, but If you can't say hardly anything about this whole picture of why you feel based on what you've received for information that he was wrongfully convicted, it's like you got to nail down independent verification on some of those or not. And if we're supposed to be going down the path of believing and committing to this theory that this was a wrongful conviction, I feel like we need something a little bit more concrete, and a little bit more defined, and a little bit more on the record. And and we eventually get some information later in the podcast, but in the early episodes, like, I didn't feel like, I hate to say, like, I didn't feel like I was along for the ride of Mike being innocent. I was like, well, I haven't really heard anything that is on the record that leads me to believe he's innocent. Right, you know and the
0: on-the-record I mean? on the thing is definitely key here. Yeah. Toby, what are your thoughts about that? And I'm also curious about what your thoughts are, because I think we sort of share this opinion, that there's a lot of contradictory interviews and that, that aren't explained in the, in the podcast. Like, Just what do you think about like those two factors here?
4: Well, I, I I think that was a good way of asking that, because I think part of the thing is that I think if you're going to hold stuff back you have to earn the trust of the listener by being very accurate and concrete with other things so that people are like, oh, well, you know, I'm sure they've got their reasons for doing it, or I'm sure they're sure of what they've got. And I just found that it's so put together as basically a brief for Pune's theory that it isn't very consistent. And the thing where it really stuck out to me was towards the end, I don't know if it's the last episode or the second to last episode, and they're talking to that lawyer who's been working on this for like 20 years. And she's trying to sort of make the case that, that Mike's innocent. And she says that, Well, the divorce was amicable.
2: They Yes, they were in a divorce, but this divorce was amicable.
4: But we've heard that it wasn't amicable. We've heard that they were estranged. She says there was plenty of money for both of them. That wasn't an issue.
2: There was plenty of assets that they had acquired in their marriage so that there was enough for everyone.
4: But we've also heard that Effie was squirreling money away into a secret bank account that she didn't want Mike to know about. She says that it would be self-defeating for Mike because he was actually going to get money for from Effie to take care of the kids. With this idea that, you know, when you murder somebody, it's based on some rational balance sheet. After listening to that, I'm like, so this is the representative of this? And she's just contradicting, like, some major plot points. In the story, I think there's another one about... Uh, which was less important, where uh, Pune says that her brother hadn't dreamt of her mom in 30 years, but he just did, so he thinks they're getting close. But he talks earlier about how he dreamt of his family a lot, and it was dreaming about the bad times and not the good times. When there's that much contradiction, and it seems like people are trying to put a slant on things, it doesn't make me feel great about them withholding things, and you kind of wonder why. Right.
1: I wasn't crazy about the courtroom reenactments that you... We've talked about that before in several podcasts. But the idea that, you know, oh, well, looking back, uh, you know, she had an uneasy feeling about this person. And, you know, there was just sort of like this retcon of, you know, sinister motives and weird, urgent suspense that's supposed to be evidentiary of, you know, somebody else being the killer. So, well, it comes down to this. If, If it's not Mike and somebody else decides they need to kill Effie because something with Mike.
0: Because of something. Because, because it company, could be anything. She confra- could have been gambling. Maybe she had debts. Maybe she was having an right. affair with an well, abusive person.
1: If she had debts, the way you don't settle that, you don't kill the person that still owes you 20000 or whatever it is. That's not how you do it. If it was something, if you want to get to Mike, you, know, you either kill Mike, you don't go through the process of framing him for someone else's murder. That's just far too elaborate. And if you're just going to end up killing Effie to send a message to Mike, the message has got to be clear, right? You don't kill somebody to send an ambiguous message, right? You kill somebody so they know, okay, now you got to do this or that.
0: Can I ask you a question, though? Couldn't it be something else completely that wasn't even explored here? I mean, I know that the timing of it is not great for Mike, right? Yeah. But there are so many other unexplored situations, like... Maybe these tenants of theirs were just abusive pricks who were just like, you know, being really shitty to her. And maybe she was about to call the police. Maybe like there's so many maybes. And the the theory is so elaborate, but without being able to tell us why you're telling us the elaborate theory yeah, with literally telling us you can't tell us why. I'm
1: not buying that a daycare operator in Vancouver, Washington was assassinated (laughs) because of a counterfeit passport scheme out of Hungary. You know, it's just that's just a bridge too far.
0: Yeah. Laura, it struck me that just the evidence makes a convincing case that Mike maybe didn't do it, right? And I don't want to say the stakes are low because they're obviously high for Pune because her mother was murdered and she's trying to solve the mother's murder. I actually do think it's more about that than trying to exonerate her dad. So there's just this sort of sense that, like, it's either this or that or this or that or this or that. Did you find that anything in between was just completely missing like they ask us to buy this incredibly elaborate thing without like like the like the journalist doesn't interrogate any other options
3: yeah and if i sat here and like make a little list on both sides like okay why mike okay they're getting divorced mike's location at the time that she was killed was kind of uh hard to pin down effie's friend said she was afraid of mike And then on the other side, we have this, like, strange situation where the father at the daycare says there's, like, these two men that are, like, you know, shaking her up. And then she looks upset and her hair is ruffled. And then there was, like, also the neighbor that had heard yelling. So, you know, there is something going on. But I I don't feel like I know which one it is and it could be something completely different because clearly something was up obviously she was murdered but it could have been something even totally more random it could have been some but you think at this point it would have come out in the wash about what it was if it was something else like somebody would have opened their mouth at this point if it was something else all these years later I don't know. Toby, I have a question for you. Um, The
0: podcast at the beginning and end says that Pune has this quarter million dollar reward on the table. We go into the story saying, like, this is her theory and and the the journalism tries to maybe explore that or whatever. And we can, you know, we've all agreed. I think it doesn't do a great job of that. Wasn't there another potential story here about a woman who's been spending 30 years trying to solve her mother's murder? And she's willing to participate fully. We hear she has a Carrie from Homeland room in her house that has like, you know, a wall with cards and strings and like boxes and boxes of files. I found myself thinking like there's another story here and we're just too focused on trying to solve something that seems kind of unsolvable. Does that make sense?
4: Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you completely. I think maybe after two thirds of it, I started listening into it more as a portrait of a woman dealing with grief than as like an actual investigation into to the potential solution of a murder. You know, the way I was kind of conceptualizing it at the end is this. You know, Pune has this absolutely horrible thing happen where her mother is murdered allegedly by her father who then goes to jail for, it's like about as destabilizing a thing as you can imagine. And the way she's kind of dealt with it is to spend the rest of her life and her money trying to figure out a way in which that is not what happened. If you look at it that way, I I think it's a better podcast, but that's not the way the podcast frames itself, right? You have to make that decision that that's what you want to listen to. But yeah, I a hundred percent agree with you.
0: I also think that the fact that they're this Iranian family living in the United States, that they sort of are exemplars of the, quote, American dream, that Pune was very poor at one point and earned a lot of money. It seems she was very driven by trying to defend her father. Like, there's just a lot there. And Pune was saying it, but, like— There was no underscoring of it, and that was just not the focus. I thought that was a strange choice, too. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out The Yellow Car, the podcast? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs
3: down for this podcast. I hate to do this because I don't do it very often, but this is a thumbs down for me. I had a really hard time listening to this podcast. I think the story itself is interesting. Like Toby said, I mean, it's definitely a look at grief over a prolonged period of time when you have a family member who's a victim of a violent crime. But it was hard for me to get through. You know, I'd listen to it while I was out walking. And then if I saw somebody, I was like, ah, I'm going to just like turn this off and go talk to somebody that I see walking. So... I didn't feel drawn into the theory of the wrongful conviction the way that I hoped I would be. So, you know, I think that this had potential. But for me, it just it wasn't my thing. Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the yellow car? You know,
4: I I really I kind of turned around on this. Like I said, about two thirds of the way through it, when I just kind of stopped worrying too much about whether they were going to be able to prove this theory that she had and just started spending more of my time sort of focused on her story and what all this stuff that was going on, what it kind of meant to her rather than what it kind of meant in reality. But that's not the way the podcast is positioned, which is weird. For me, I had to listen to it in a way that it was not intended in order to get something out of it. That being said, I'm sort of a thumb sideways. As a true crime story, it's not very compelling. As just a story about a person and sort of how they've reacted to this sort of immensely traumatic thing that happened in their lives, I, I thought that part was pretty interesting. So I'll give it a thumb sideways. Kevin Flynn, I feel like this podcast is a
1: Caesar salad. Do you guys know like the the origin of the Caesar salad?
4: No, why okay. you tell us? Julius Caesar?
1: No, no. Okay, so like it's July fourth, nineteen twenty something. The Hotel Caesar. In uh, I think in Mexico, and they run out of all this food, right? So the chef comes out with whatever they had left, romaine lettuce, raw egg, anchovy, and like whipped up the side table, this new thing, and it's the Caesar salad. So basically, I feel like this is the best podcast they could make with what was available. And because there's so much of it that just it's not ready yet. If you can't tell us... The identities of all these people. But I feel like in six months, they'd be able to. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to go sideways. But the more I talk about this, I, just, I can't recommend this to people. I got to go thumbs down.
0: I'm going thumbs down, too. And it really upsets me because <laughs> this is the thing. So KGW is a TV station. Uh, this reporter had a story that she's been working on for a really long time. They decide to make a podcast out of it. And the point of the podcast, they decided, because there's a gajillion other podcasts just like it, is to solve a potential wrongful conviction and perhaps find a real murderer in a case. So they decide that that's going to be the focus. That was the wrong focus. And I would argue that it was almost like an irresponsible focus, given that the reporting couldn't be finished with the legal constraints. And I think it's debatable. I, I, I do think that obviously there's a lot of ethics around Ongoing investigations, et cetera. I'm actually not sure this investigation is ongoing just because there's a cop assigned to the case. Sometimes police departments do that just to keep people from sharing things out loud. Like that actually is a thing. There's a civil lawsuit happening here. We don't hear a whole lot about, you know, the actual law enforcement activity because the police won't say anything. So, again, another huge missing piece of information. We have all these huge missing pieces of information yet. There is so much good material here that could have been a different story and a stronger story and a more creative story and a better story. Um, I it had
1: potential.
0: I, you know, you know what it feels like? It feels like in this TV station, and I'm not saying Ashley pitched it this way, but if she had, they would have been like, no, you're making a podcast. It's got to be true crime. You're going to try to solve the murder. That's how it felt to me. It felt like a TV package extended into a long podcast with the wrong focus. So I'm sorry. I really wanted to like it. There were moments and there was tape in this podcast that I really enjoyed. I think Ashley is a solid reporter. You know, we hear her on tape with her sources doing what she can with what they're willing to tell her. But I just I cannot recommend the yellow car. All right, Kevin. Kevin. Here we are in our business section. Business
1: section. What, <laughs>
0: what have we got going on in our Patreon right now?
1: Okay, well, we've got the Crime Writers on after show tonight. We're going to be talking about Rebecca's trip to Atlanta.
0: Hmm, Why did I go to Atlanta?
1: To meet with Payne Lindsay. <gasps> I did? And to give some story like feedback. feedback, before the, uh, the next season of Up and Vanish drop. Rebecca got a preview. She was able to give some feedback that apparently they took, so... Rebecca will tell Maybe. us all about them. I don't really know that. <laughs> they for said sure. they took.
3: They said they took. Surprise.
1: That's right. So now it's a thumbs up. Uh okay. <laughs> We've got our latest episode of Married With Podcast. Uh, We taped that live on Crowdcast, so we had a bunch of listeners who were able to come in, offer their thoughts, and ask some of their questions.
0: Including one of the best questions we've ever gotten in the history of Married With Podcast.
1: Is this the one I'm going to...
0: Yes! It was incredible.
1: It was from Jen, and she talked about her effed up evening with her former QAnon babysitter.
0: (laughs) Current (laughs) QAnon former babysitter.
1: Yeah, that went sideways pretty fast. Uh, Like we teased earlier, Lara's virtual book launch is going to be on uh, September 14th. And for those on Patreon, you can interact with Lara directly on Crowdcast. Everybody else can kind of still take part and listen to and watch what's going on on Facebook. So be on the lookout for that. Lara, you said you wanted to do some game What was the thing you were talking about? Yeah,
3: well, we were thinking, like, what would make this fun? And I know you guys are always like, oh, my God, Laura has a freaking story for everything. So I thought it would be fun to do a game of two truths and one lie where I give three things and our listeners try to figure out what's true and what's the lie and oh. then I will tell the story. Hmm. It's like real Pain Lindsay song
0: or fake Pain Lindsay
3: song. Again, mm-hmm.
0: we've played on this
3: yeah. Yeah. podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I think it could be fun.
1: Your clothes, parentheses, <laughs> all over the
4: floor. It's <laughs> <laughs> one of those songs, as I recall. Is so there a beer pong song? I, I'm not going to go down this Yeah, no, yeah, yeah I yeah, don't have
3: a beer pong. Listen,
0: I, I'm going to tell you in the after show how fucking awesome Pain Lindsey is and I'm telling you, he can take all these jokes. like He can fucking take it and he's doing five. Fine. Uh, I'm not worried about that.
4: (laughs) I think he's doing quite fine.
1: (laughs) Well, over on uh, These Are Their Stories, this week we've got uh, our uh, discussion of a classic Law & Order episode with Dennis O'Hare. It's called Pro Se, and this is the one where he plays a schizophrenic man who uh, gets on his medication and defends himself in court, Mm. and it's a great dramatic appearance. You'll remember that Ann Dow from... Uh, the Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale. Tale, Aunt Lydia. Um, <laughs> blessed be the fruit, Rebecca. Uh, that uh, uh, she plays the sister, and at the end, uh, he ends up going off his his medication. Has a. A delusional episode. You're in court, bearing the lead. So heartbreaking. You're
0: bearing the lead. What is it? Who is the guest on these are their stories? Oh, this it's week?
1: Charlie Pierce. Yes, from Esquire, who we'd been oh, really? harassing. We'd been harassing him on Twitter for a long time, and he finally came on.
0: Wait, wait, don't tell me. It's Charlie Pierce.
1: I enjoy his blog. Well, one more thing about these are their stories in the feed. There's, gonna, there's a bonus episode coming out this week. I'm going to give you a little hint. The guest for this interview has a podcast that's coming out, that's out now, a true crime podcast called Killer's Vault. The host is Elizabeth Rome. You'll remember her as Serena Sutherland on Original Recipe Law and Order. And probably everybody remembers how she left the show, how hmm. the character ended. That at the last minute, she asked if she was getting fired because she was a lesbian. And nobody knew that she was a lesbian for the entirety (laughs) of the show. So so I got to ask her. uh, I got to ask Elizabeth Rome what her feelings were about that.
2: Well, you know, Dick Wolf asked me if I wanted the normal law and order departure, if I wanted something splashy. And I said, splashy. I mean, who wants to do the typical anything? So I don't know. I always thought, you know, kind of to myself, maybe she maybe she's gay. And then when he came up with that, I thought, I asked him, I said, are you reading my mind? And he (laughs) laughed and he said, no, I just I think this could be a really great water cooler moment. I mean, and that was really it.
1: And lastly, we have one other bit of audio that was sent in to us. We got a complaint about Laura Bricker. So Laura recently made an appearance on a podcast called Talking About Cats with a very impressionable podcast host. Here is the complaint.
2: Okay, so what he, what did Laura Bricker do that made your podcasting experience so difficult?
0: He taught me a bad word!
2: She taught you a bad word. So you now know a few bad words, but I think she really popped the cork on that. Uh, yeah. She taught you, and we can say it only to now. No, no, now, I'm not you, saying it. Your mother's not in the room. Just Just for the people listening, what word did she teach you? Piss, <laughs> she you piss, oh, God. and that was when you were seven years old. Yeah. I said to her, I said, "What have I done?" I said, "My son, who's just a little kid, has a podcast about cats. She's into cats. I was like, you I want can't to come on?" I kept saying
4: the word, and I wrote.
2: I didn't know it was going to have horrific words, and that it was going to get you in trouble with friends and family. Yes um but i promise you buddy i will never invite someone like that back on your podcast good is there anything if you could say like send a message to laura to let her know how you feel having been tainted what would you say to her
1: i am so mad at you
2: and if she had a book coming out would you maybe not buy it protest the bookstore
4: I'd come into every bookstore, and I'd destroy it with a rocket
2: launch.
4: Thank you, Dominic. Thank you.
3: (laughs) What a bunch of prudes, huh? Piss? That's a bad word? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you guys, I think I need a bodyguard. He's coming with a rocket launch for me. Oh, yeah. Dear God. Dear God. (laughs) Look at Toby's face.
4: I... Has he listened to our podcast? What do
3: you think is gonna happen? <laughs> I yeah, to his our dad uh, Jordan is a uh, Canadian true crime podcaster. I know. He does like yeah.
4: uh, <laughs> like the nighttime podcast or yes. something, right? Yeah.
3: <laughs> All
0: right, Kevin. Uh, before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week?
1: We do. Our Patreon patron saints are Susan Handy and Clucci Oliveira. Bless you
0: you guys and thanks for supporting us on patreon and kevin does thus end the business section
1: business section thus ended
0: all right i'm gonna fade that music out moving on
1: well listen i i, I won't say a word but my uh, favorite podcast just dropped a new episode tonight and what
2: does Bo have in his mouth i don't know
0: a former TV cop, a washed-up Broadway producer, and a mysterious young woman bond over their shared love of true crime. When a resident in their expensive New York apartment building dies under suspicious circumstances, the trio start their own investigation. It's suicide.
1: It's textbook. Now, just-
4: it's not. But it, you, no, 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 no,
1: no, no. It's not. So go on ahead and enjoy your cute little lives and be glad that you still have one goddamn true crime fucking numbnuts.
0: Oliver is in desperate need of money. Charles needs companionship. And Mabel has a mysterious connection to the victim. When the police dismiss the death as a suicide, the group does what any true crime fans would do. They start their own podcasts.
1: We could multitask a little bit. Silo out a second investigation. Do a second podcast.
2: No. We need to focus. Only murders in the building. Only Murders in the Building. Welcome to Only Murders in the Building.
0: Hulu's 10-episode Only Murders in the Building stars Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. The comedy is a send-up of true crime tropes, an old-fashioned whodunit, and an unexpected character study of three people confronting their pasts by finding meaning in the present. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for the first three episodes of Only Murders in the Building. So to remain completely spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Toby Ball, I hear that you are a fan of my newest Twitter follower, Steve Martin, are you not? Whoa, what a name drop.
4: (laughs) If Steve Martin followed me on Twitter, that would like make my year. You Uh, die, you die, right? Right? I die. Since I was like uh, eight years old, I've been a huge Steve Martin fan, had all the uh, LPs, Comedy is Not Pretty, Wild and Crazy Guy. So Steve Steve Martin,
1: Martin. if you're listening to this podcast, True crime podcast.
4: Please follow Toby Ball. I've never Toby asked Ball for anything. I've never asked for anything on this podcast. The only this follows is like one people. So. three
0: hundred and seventy. When he followed me, he followed three hundred and seventy-five people. 373 of which were famous and the other two were Crime Raiders On
4: and Rebecca yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. So anyway, when I was like in middle school, like my buddies Terrence and Martin and I could just like recite every word. We could in unison do all his bits and stuff. And, you know, he's consistently just does like interesting things. He's multi-talented. He can play the banjo. He can dance. He's a good writer. And the all concertina
0: stuff. apparently too. He concertina,
4: play. he plays a mean concertina. Although I, I agree with his fellow podcasters that maybe that's not the best noise for the podcast.
1: Tim Kono was murdered by someone in this building, which means... I'm sorry, cut. What's the matter? You are scoring a murder mystery, not DJing a hobbit's wedding. The concertina can be very haunting. It transports... Yeah, well, it transports me back to 1800s Ireland.
0: Kevin, um, can we just say, in the first few minutes of this show, there is straight up a scene... That is Crime Writers On.
2: It is not, Ray, too obvious. Exactly. Absolutely. Listen, I'm just relieved that something of Becky Butler showed up somewhere. I almost forgot who went missing.
3: I took too long with it.
2: I do think student council president, she had a smile that would light up a room, pop. Yeah, yeah, listen, I'm all for a good peeling of the onion, but let's pace it up, people, please.
0: What did you think about that when you saw that on the show, Kevin?
1: Oh, my God. I, well, I'm with Martin Short. You know, it's good to peel back the different layers of the onion. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, I thought we were listening to uh, Crime Writers On. But, you know, I think it's true really, that true crime fans do like to pull... Apart part, not only the mystery, but of course, how, how the stories are told as well. And I like to think that, you know, We've our listeners have, yeah, <laughs> are really into that part of it as well. So, yeah, I mean, I just thought it was a very charming scene and obviously it meant a lot to us I think the four of us personally
0: I secretly wondered like does somebody who works on the show actually listen to our podcast I I thought that but then I thought well probably Steve
1: Martin right (laughs) he's the writer so can you
0: imagine can you even imagine Laura you want to move into this building that's portrayed on the show don't you
3: Oh, my God. Seriously, you guys, as I was watching this, I was like, this is my dream to be hanging out with somebody like Martin Short, who's like super dramatic, and Steve Martin, this like super grumpy old guy, and then this sort of like blasé, you know, girl, but going around solving a crime in my own building. I was like, and the thing was, I loved it because there was like funny, humorous, cozy elements too, like the murderer could be this lady who wants a bigger apartment. And I'm like, oh, that's that's brilliant. I love it. Um, but I just found this, like, eccentric mix of people in the building from the cat guy who's covered in all his cat hair <laughs> to the lady that's the manager who's like, I'm just here because, like, insurance says we have to do this shit. You know, I'm like, oh, my God. I would just die. But it was fun. So... Toby, there are so many subtle references in
0: this show. So The Onion did a fake true crime podcast a few years ago that to me was not particularly funny because it was just like a send-up of true crime podcasts. It didn't add anything satirically to the conversation. This show, in my opinion, adds a lot to the conversation about true crime podcasts and is like kind of subtle about it. What did you think of just the way that they as uh, they were talked about on the show, peeled back the layers of the onion of true crime podcasting.
4: They, they pop up every once in a while. I think there was one at some point they say, oh, oh you know, episode two is when they make you care about the victim. <laughs> like, you only need to find one person who knows them. That's all you need.
1: <laughs> Look, every great episode two always makes you care deeply for the victim. Uh, that's true. I've fallen in love with so many dead people. Either you know, they make them sympathetic or sexy or interesting, none of which...
4: I feel for Tim
2: Cohn. Look, so. someone in this building had to have known him. We find that one person, and all this cracks open.
4: There's other little things. Like they they do a little uh tip of the hat to serial with their opening song, starts off with like a plinking piano and stuff. So it's clearly written by people who've listened to their fair share of true crime podcasts and love them and are finding clever ways of of sort of lovingly, I guess spoofing isn't really the word, but yeah. it's...
0: It's irreverent and almost like yeah. reverential in a weird way. What do you think, Kevin?
1: Yeah, I mean, American Vandal was sort of the first really great true crime satire that really identified what the tropes of the emerging genre were and then really skewering them in a great way. And this, I think, is just a lovely send-up of podcast culture and... And true crime culture, it doesn't demean it and isn't mean, but it finds the real humor and quasi-absurdity in amateur armchair detectiving, right? And, and, and the characters are really interesting, and they're played so well by these these three actors, and I would love to get more into you know their individual performances. Yeah, let's talk about
0: how but understated they were, because it really is beautifully
1: understated. I will say, yes, Martin Short, I was really worried about Martin Short. You have
0: issues with Martin Short sometimes. Because he overacts
1: a lot, right? In a lot of these things, he's just really chewing the furniture. He's almost like he's doing Ed Grimley all the time. But he is so understated, and then you feel bad for his character because he's in these, the you know, in this financial situation, which is really all about his self-image and what. Because
0: Splash the Musical didn't work out. Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) But
4: I, I can't get any work. You know, I mean, this this is it's been years now, and so I just I need a little help from someone. You have to sell the apartment.
1: I can't do that, Dad. You cannot keep living like this. It's all I have it's who i am and even selena gomez is playing if it she I, I mean the last thing that she was in was something that i ended up watching all the time which was the wizards of waverly place on disney Is that's the
0: last thing she was on Well, was. that's well, the thing she, you know her from yeah there's
1: the last time she was on a tv series mm-hmm. right and so i always thought that she had a very mature sense of humor a sense of timing for you, you know which was just this factory of teen actors and she brings it here. She also is very understated and, and vulnerable. At the same time, she is cuttingly sassy. We are different.
3: And I don't need people like you in my
2: life. Fine. Good. So, if you see me around the building, act like you don't know me. Because you don't.
0: Happily.
1: Fuck you. So, I think that I think just the performance is great. And Steve Martin, of course, as well.
0: Steve Martin is amazingly warm and lovely in this. Yeah. Laura, I want to ask you about the story structure here. Because... One of the things that is really smart and very unexpected, because I went into this thinking it was just going to be like a satire about true crime culture. There are actually like four or five mysteries taking place at the same time here. Of course, we have the central mystery of, you know, the victim who is murdered. We have the side mystery of a murder potentially that happened in the past. We have like, what the hell is going on with Steve Martin? Why is he lying about all these things that he says, are his real life but actually turned out to be dialogue from his performance in a TV show yeah. a really long time ago. You know, we have Martin Short's family dynamics. We have, like, what the fuck is Lena Gomez doing in her aunt's apartment? Like, there's mm-hmm. layers Who'll and layers of cat.
4: <laughs> yes, what about they're... the omelets?
0: Yes. Yeah. The
1: omelets, that'll come. We'll find out about
0: So that. many layers of mysteries here. Like, do you like that as much
1: as I do? Why is not everything okay in Oklahoma? <laughs> <laughs> It was her panties.
3: (laughs) Oh, my God. No, I I love it because I think what it does in a funny way for me is it kind of leads me down the path of the killer could be any one of these three that are working on this podcast. And, you know, like it could be Selena Gomez. You know, it could be anybody. And I think all these little side stories are out there and they could just be like red herrings. Like this could be just like we're just throwing red herrings everywhere. Like. It just keeps it fun because, like, some of these things are just so bonkers that you're like, oh, this this can't be anything. You're like, maybe it is. And then it's going to be even more amusing if that's something that actually ends up being a plot point that comes into play when the big reveal happens, if the big reveal happens. But, like, Sting in the elevator? Yeah. Oh, my Sting. God. I'm like, I hope Sting's the killer.
4: Please, your dog. Yes, I'm sorry control him. I'm sorry
2: That's it. when he is just a big fan I don't like dogs oh, no. do you have a dog I have a dog I don't like him either
3: I have to say back to Barton short the dog in the buggy I mean mm. this is why I want to live in that building I, I mean I would be next to him and his dog in the buggy with a cat or two in the buggy Toby he would be on board with this as well I know it yeah, well, Toby, you
0: think that maybe the characters in the show, like, are representative of us in some weird way, or could be. Like, who is who of us on this show, Toby?
4: I don't want to name anything other than I think that Laura was the one that was hardest to find a, uh, a matchup with. And I thought maybe the uh, the head of the uh, Apartment Tenants Association oh, or whatever Oh, yes, the was. co-op
2: association. Bunny. Yes. She was brutal that (laughs) week. She was
4: hilarious.
0: (laughs) Toby, I I do want your thoughts on sort of the mixed tones of this, though. Because as we were just talking about, it's not just a send-up. There's a lot going on. Packed. by the way, we've only watched three episodes. They're all very short. So we've watched, you know, like an hour and 15 minutes or whatever of this show. And so much is happening. What do you think about that mix?
4: Well, I think that, you know, I mean, you guys have talked about a lot of it. I think the other thing that kind of stood out to me is that there is a sort of sadness to all the characters, you know? And that's... Another thing that makes it kind of interesting is that it's not like madcap and zany all the time. It's like all these people are, you know, living with regrets or loneliness or regrets and loneliness. And again, I, I don't know. I, I just think I think it's sort of a couple cuts above like what you normally see. I just think that the writing is very very strong. The characters that are written are sort of strong and complex, and there are things that you you like about them. There are things that you kind of pity about them and there are reasons why you don't necessarily trust them but not in a way that makes you dislike them it's hmm. just it's just makes them more complicated so it, again like we're talking about all this stuff and we've watched like what like 70 minutes of it or something yeah we've I mean, watched it's, like
0: a third uh, less than a third
4: it's like a half of a movie you know and there's there's just so much there
0: kevin
1: yeah i agree it's definitely it, normally if you're writing a slapstick comedy You would not go to the lengths of creating characters that appear to have this much depth. And, you know, Toby's right. There's an element of sadness and loneliness and regret in in these three characters. But we see them as also very funny. It makes them very well-rounded. And I also don't think there'd be a lot of special effects, right? (laughs) There are these surrealistic scenes, these little vignettes, and I know Toby didn't care for them, but I did like them. uh, That they were unexpected. And that's what that's what comedy is, is something unexpected happens, right? You don't expect that line, that funny thing, and this was also a surprise, um, but I think it's also very literal in the sense that everybody's dream sequence, weird, funky thing had to do with what they wanted. Hmm. Martin Short's character wants to bounce back, and hmm. so he, he literally bounces back, and the ring falls onto Selena Gomez's finger, and we don't know yet why Steve Martin keeps making those omelets has something to do with, I think, was it Lisa or whoever yeah. the person was who had lived there before, his, his ex-wife, girlfriend, remember? was, like, remember? his
3: daughter or something.
1: Could be, yeah. I mean, there's something something about the omelets. He makes them and doesn't eat them. There's something important there that we'll find out. I mean, they have that in Reservation Dogs where...
0: Yes, where another Hulu keeps, show that the, we we're also watching. Where
1: the, where the kid keeps being visited by his spiritual warrior from uh, the past. But in any event, I, I digress. It's just a a real cut above.
3: Oh, I was just going to say one thing when you were talking about the characters being sad. You know, we have that side scene where Martin Short's character goes off to New Jersey to see his son. And earlier in the show, you know, he's like, oh, well, now I just like to be a grandfather or whatever. And then he goes to see his son. And at first I was like, oh, God, why are we taking this like total detour? But I think then I saw the point. It was actually pretty brilliant because in that one scene, I totally understood that vulnerability and the sadness in his character because you saw the truth of his situation. And then you saw how when he got that one text message, like, come back, we've got some information or whatever. That was like something that was giving him a new sense of purpose because clearly he really wasn't a grandfather and his family situation wasn't what he was portraying it to be. but. At the same time, like Kevin said, it doesn't take away from the humor of that character who's, you know, super dramatic, not as dramatic as he's been in other things, but at the same time, you know, just kind of a funny character
0: one of the things I really relate to about the show which is like very specific to people who grew up on Long Island is having friends in the city who are way fucking cooler than you are and, I thought like,
1: you were going to say recording in your closet
0: <laughs> no although oh, that is really funny you get really hot in that closet right Yeah. Um, it's like you have you know you make maybe your parents had friends in the city and then like you hung out with their kids and like the kids were like all so much cooler than everyone you knew on Long Island and that's sort of like Selena Gomez's character's experience but that takes us to this past storyline and Laura there seems to be like a murder back then, too, right?
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and we see, you know, like you said, that side mystery where we have Selena Gomez doing a recording of herself in case she goes missing or dies or something. And we find out this whole backstory of the Hardy Boys. And I'm like, I love that. I mean, hello, I love Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and everything. Um, so we, we are having different flashbacks at different points, like when they are going into – his apartment. By the way, I love when they go in his apartment and they have on like the yellow dishwasher Mm. (laughs) (laughs)
2: glove.
3: So that's funny. But then we have the flashback where there's like this more poignant scene where there's like this group of them that's hanging out together and they, you know, getting the keys from the superintendent's son who's part of the group and going into different units in the building. And then, you know, she sees the blonde that's part of their group who's dead. So, that's going to be a whole nother storyline and and who knows maybe that's related, but i you know I like the layers upon layers that we have in this and this ability to sort of walk this you know line between humor and something where you're feeling more empathy for these characters at the hmm. same time. And Toby, we even got a Patty LaPone
0: uh, reference, did we not? And you know who that is now, thanks to this very podcast. I was about to
4: say that was when I was like, "Shit, somebody's definitely listening to this podcast." Just on this, because <laughs> there's no way Patty LaPone would come up. I uh, also like the, uh, you know, like I read all the Hardy Boys that were written until I was like, whenever I aged out of it. So they're prominent, and then there's sort of this like little metaphor where they're hiding all the jewels, all the valuables that she finds inside them. And uh, again, I think it's it's like a, it's like an interesting touch that I think a lot of people, you know, Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys was kind of the entry point to crime. Right. That, yeah. Those are the first things you read, like in maybe Encyclopedia Brown or something.
1: And I will say that if you want to see the creepiest fucking book cover of a young adult book ever. Look up the Hardy Boys while the clock ticks. Yes. <laughs> that cover where they're tied up and ganged and there's an old man coming through. Yeah. <laughs> the, the grandfather clocked secret entrance. It's like, oh, my God, no molestar, no molestar.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is very creepy. And Super several, creepy. several layers of creepy. Oh. You know how
4: they get out of those ropes, don't you? They always did the same. They'd like flex their wrists and they got to tie them up and then they'd unflex them and like slip their hands out. Make themselves big.
0: Just like when a bear (laughs) attacks you. Make yourself small. Just like like when a bear attacks you. (laughs) All right. Let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out Only Murders in the Building? It's a brand new comedy on Hulu and it's a send up of true crime culture and all that that contains plus a lot more. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Only Murders in
3: the Building? I love this show so much. I've been telling people to watch it all week. I I feel like, you know what, it's back to school time. We're still living in a freaking pandemic. This is a kind of like fun, addictive show that I want to binge and watch because I just find it really enjoyable. And we've got like a great cast and it's something that I can relate to. You know, it's a satire, but at the same time, it's a satire about people that love listening to true crime podcasts start making their own podcasts. And even though these characters are obviously exaggerated versions of people, I can see people that I know in some of these characters. And, you know, I can relate to them in a way, like, oh, yeah, I know I know how that is. But it's, it's in a way that is comical and funny and enjoyable. And Selena Gomez is, you know, you kind of wonder, like, how is she going to stack up against these two, like, veteran older comedians? And she's so, I don't want to say deadpan, but she's just... Understated, and there's one line where like Steve Martin is sending her a text message and he's like signing it, whatever. And she's like, Yeah, I know it's you. <laughs> yeah, they don't like phone calls, they phone calls bother them. He says, By so yeah. the way,
1: Laura, I don't know if you notice this tiny detail that on her phone that the, the contact was listed as Charles parentheses old. Yes,
3: yeah,
1: like she has a young Charles, but yeah,
0: yeah, Toby Ball, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for only murders in the building.
4: I, I think it's really good. It's really well written. It's really well acted. I, it's great to see Steve Martin in something like this. I think, you know, especially being a sort of ensconced in true crime podcasting for all these years, uh, it makes it extra fun. You know, my my one caveat is I think like the the scenes where Martin Short is like using his supposedly his skills as a director to you like hold down subjects, the chorus
0: line scenes, Toby.
4: Are you going to shit on the chorus
0: line scenes? (laughs) I thought those were
4: not good. And I thought the surreal stuff was not good. Everything else I thought was excellent. So a hearty thumbs up. I'm really psyched that there's five more episodes to watch.
0: Kevin Flint.
1: Yeah, I'm a big thumbs up. This is very much like a great true crime podcast, which is that I cannot wait for a new episode to come out each week. And I can't tell you how long it's been since I have been, like, angry that why didn't we just get to watch these all at once, like on Netflix? God damn it, Hulu. Why do you got to be that way? Uh, But, you know, I just cannot wait for the next episode of Only Murders in the Building, Because, you know, it knows what great podcasts know, that it's really not about the crime. It's about the people and the journey, right? And so while, in the end, we're going to have to find out who done it, it really is about these three people. And they're played so well, and they're so likable. Selena Gomez just really just blows me away, because not only is she funny, but all of a sudden she gets really vulnerable. Mm. And her eyes well up, and it's like, whoa, is this even the same person? just i just i can't say enough about the performances and man all of the the little bits about them recording they're running around trying to get (laughs) trying trying to record people and get their permission to be recorded which you don't need
0: in new york by the way
1: you know you look that up
0: no new york is a one-party consent state oh well i only know that because of a story that we did (laughs) okay, okay
1: well it's funny that they uh that they feel like they need that anyway but uh yeah so uh I gotta say, if you don't have Hulu, goddamn it, get Hulu and watch Only Murders in the Building. Oh, and by the way, guys, did you know that Tina Fey's character who made that uh, that podcast cameo, her character's name is Cinda Canning? Yeah, like Sarah Canning.
0: Oh, yes. <laughs> Yes, that makes a lot of sense. All right, so it's time for my review, right? Yeah, go ahead. I fucking love this show. I love everything about it. It's rich, it's layered, it's nuanced, it's diverse in its storytelling and in its mood. It's got gorgeous art direction, which we didn't even talk about. Mm. The way this building is portrayed, it's like, it could have been dumb and like Wes Anderson-ish, which isn't dumb in Wes Anderson movies, but it could have been that, but it wasn't that. It could have been all luxe, like the Dakota. It wasn't that. It's just, It's just... Beautifully put together. Uh, I think everyone else has said all the things that I love about it. So I'm just going to say big fat thumbs up for me for only murders in the building.
1: And your new boyfriend, Steve Martin.
0: <laughs> oh, Steve Martin. I wanted to be my dad. <laughs> Not
3: your uncle. Ooh, I- <laughs>
0: Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of the week or the crime of the week. It's not the Hamburglar's fault, but something's going on with the ice cream machine at McDonald's. The Federal Trade Commission is looking into why so many of them are broken. It seems they break down a whole lot. One customer reverse engineered the McDonald's app to place online ice cream orders all over the country to see how many of these machines were down at any time. We checked McBroken.com and saw that nationwide, one out of every 10 ice cream machines were not working. That included more than a quarter of the restaurants in New York City. The restaurants aren't the target of the probe. The Fed seemed to be more interested in the company that manufactures the 13,000 ice cream dispensers McDonald's uses around the world. They want to know if the local franchises are allowed to repair them themselves or if they're forced to pay the manufacturer to fix their busted machines. For those interested, the Mickey D's McFlurry machines are offline right now in Hooksit, Nashua, West Lebanon, Merrimack and North Conway, New Hampshire, but still churning in the cozy murder town of Exeter. Now, panel, here's my question for you. With ice cream cones and McFlurries unavailable, Ronald is going to need a new dessert. What should McDonald's offer in
3: ice cream stead? Lara Bricker, what do you think? Um, I mean, it's not something I would eat, but I'm going to say the McTwinkie. Because, <laughs> I mean, have you guys ever seen those experiments where like the Twinkie will last in the same state for years and years? Yes. So it doesn't yeah. matter if their uh, refrigeration is broken, if their storage is broken. The McTwinkie will always be available. Toby Bo, what do you think? What should McDonald's offer in ice creams stead?
4: Well, I think Twinkies, I think they're formed. They're not like baked. Mm. They're like mm. made from chemicals that become that. Anyway, uh, I was thinking like a mick creme br- Brulee or something. Just uh, Yeah. Just a wow. yeah. Wow.
0: That's high end. Kevin, yeah. what do you think?
1: Well, I think they should just take those frozen hamburger patties and just put them in the blender make like a McSlurry or something like
0: that. <laughs> Not a McFlon. A McFlon? Oh, no. <laughs> All right. We should probably end the show on that. No, but before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the
3: week this week? <coughs> um, Rebecca, we have a dog just for you this week. It's about time. We should always have a dog. Let's be real. And this comes from our friend Michelle Womble. She's one of my Brickter scale friends. Also was like my guide to the space coast of Florida when I was down there in April and her French bulldog Stewie mm. really likes Doritos. My dog's name is Stewart too. Good for I you. I know. So she, I'm and now. I I haven't yet ventured into the TikTok world, but she did this funny video on TikTok of Stewie begging for Doritos, like sitting up with his little paws up. And I was like, you know what, Stewie, we all like Doritos. And the day that he saw that, I was like, I'm making a taco salad and I'm putting Doritos on it because of Stewie. So um, it's hysterical. Stewie, I love you. And I also love the Doritos. Stewie, solidarity. Anyone who doesn't like Doritos is a monster. All right, Laura Bricker, <laughs> if people
0: want to send their pets, it could be any kind of animal and not even a pet, just like an animal that you know or have seen. That's awesome. How can they find you online besides crime on a gmail.com? How can they find you specifically online, Laura Bricker, like on Twitter?
3: On Twitter, they can find me at Laura Bricker. Toby Ball, how can people find you on Twitter?
4: Steve Martin can follow me at Toby Ball NH. <laughs>
0: so thirsty. Kevin Flynn, what about you?
4: I'm at Kevin P. Flynn.
0: And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reblavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I encourage you to join our amazing, and warm, and inclusive community in our Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We have a regular old page. Just go there and click the button to go to the group. It is totally worth it. Support this show at patreon.com partners in crime media you'll get the crime writers on after show right now plus married with podcast laura bricker's leave it to bricker podcast and toby ball's deep dive book club podcast our theme song was composed and performed by ty gibbons Our line editor is the incredibly handsome Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement, where Steve Martin has a standing invitation to do his voiceovers or pretty much anything else he wants to do. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you Later. later. Laura, I want you to sign my book And put a pair of hairy balls Next to your
3: signature I, I already signed your book Ball Were there I ball wrote hairs? Special, I wrote a special Message to you
0: Okay yeah. Was
3: it fuck you I want some of Toby's ad money?